Beautiful place to live. We're glad that you guys are here. Um, I hope you guys had a good time with Terry last week. The last, if you have not been with us, the last two weeks have been kind of unique weeks for us. Uh, Terry talked about anxiety last week. And uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen, please go back, listen to the podcast. Um, and then I mentioned this last week, but I'm going to do it again. And then I, won't, I probably won't bring it up again in a listen to format. But if you weren't here two weeks ago, as we talked about worship and the culture of entertainment and the culture of criticism and skepticism, please, please, please make sure to go back and listen to that. Uh, as we really believe as an elder team that, that this is kind of a, a shift for us as a church. Uh, even you can, if you've noticed, your chairs are even shifted uh, a little bit as a result. We're beginning to uh, curve them around. We're trying to fight against culture of entertainment, culture of skepticism and criticism and really wanting to combat those things because we are all part of a priesthood of believers. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ and we have stuff to give to one another. Uh, And so I love getting to watch you guys during family time as you guys engage, put the love of Christ on display uh, in all of that. And so uh, keep that in mind. And as we go through our time this morning in the word, there'll be also, there'll be moments where I'm interacting with you and I actually want to hear back from you. But one of the questions I, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I, I hate uh, being misunderstood. There's like, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like there's very little in life that makes me feel worse than, especially when Keely misunderstands me. Uh, when, when your spouse or somebody who seems, claims to know you, uh, who loves you, and all of these things, when, when they're misunderstood. Uh, and I don't know, am I alone in that? Does anybody else like being misunderstood? Okay, just feels great uh, all the time. Just a question for you guys, where does most misunderstanding come from, do you think? Lack of listening. Lack of listening. Anything else? I, that's the one that comes to my mind. What else? Yes, yikes. Did you mean for that to be a dagger? Because I just received that. Like, wow, toughen up, pal. Uh, Uh, But that's exactly right. Yeah, Uh, a lack of insecurity. Um, Maybe sometimes even like an inability to genuinely understand completely. I don't know if that that makes sense, but because we are all uniquely and wonderfully made, we all have a little bit different stories. We all come from a little bit different backgrounds. And to some degree, I can understand up to a point, but there is going to be a certain degree of misunderstanding, and sometimes we're uncomfortable with that because we want things to be crystal clear, or sometimes we want to control things. And I'm just curious how often this is true uh, when it comes to how we misunderstand God. We're starting a series called God Has a Name, and uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've, I've been in the church for quite a while, and there's times when, when it comes to understanding who God is, it can maybe feel like a really elementary question, or it can uh, seem like, oh great, this is going to be super boring, uh, just more information. But the reality is, I think we'd be surprised how much we misunderstand God. And on top of that, and I'm, I'm not trying to prescribe and say God's like me in this, but I do, I would bet to guess that there are times where God's a little bit sad at how much we misunderstand him. 
And so this next, these next seven weeks, we're going to be going on a journey together to understanding who God is. The series is called God Has a Name. It's rooted uh, and comes out of uh, Exodus 34, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Uh, and a good friend of ours, John Mark Comer, wrote a book called God Has a Name. If you don't, haven't read it or if you're unfamiliar with John Mark Comer, he's, I think, one of the most important voices uh, right now for the church in this era. I'd invite you to listen to their podcast. If you do podcasts or pick up some of his books, they're phenomenal. Um, but God Has a Name is one uh, that I strongly recommend that you guys read as we go through this together. But as we're starting this series, and, and really this goal is to figure out and grow in who God is, I'm just curious from you guys, I'd ask you the question, and I'm asking you now, who is God? What's, what's a response? What do, you, what do you say when I say who is God? And you, like two, you don't have like a sentence, you have like two words, three words maybe, or one. Who is God? Creator, Redeemer, what else? So good. Love it. Father, good. What else? Friend. Merciful. Okay. Understanding all things. He made all things. He understands all things. Beautiful. Anything else? Protector. Sweet. These are awesome terms of who God is. He is love. Amen. Teacher, holy, perfect. Provider? Okay, beginning and the end. Say? Alive and active. Great I am. Yahweh? Good. <laughs> Eternal? There's, we could go on for a long time. I'm, I'm, there is one key one that we're missing. Those are Jesus. Sovereign, yes. Jesus. We can't miss Jesus. Yeah, right? Everybody's giving me all these beautiful, I could write like a gazillion worship songs out of that. But God is Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say this before, but in our culture, this is actually very common today. But I couldn't possibly believe in a God who, fill in the blank, Again, a little bit of interaction here. When you hear people see, hear, or say things like, I couldn't possibly believe in a God who, what is it, what's often followed by that? So a God who could allow bad things, yeah, the, the classic one is bad things to happen to good people. What else? Send people to hell? Let a loved one die? Okay. Violence? One that many don't, maybe don't want to talk about is, uh, I couldn't possibly believe in a God who wouldn't be okay with a monogamous, uh, gay-committed relationship. Or any form of that relationship. I couldn't possibly believe in a God who, fill in the blank. This is a thought or philosophy that is rampant in our culture today. And many of us even do something similar. We've got to understand when we talk like that, I could not believe in a God that, or I could not believe in a God if, what begins to happen is we begin to be the authoritative ones in declaring who God is like. 
we begin to be the ones who uh, make the qualifications of who God is. We talked about what are, where a lot of misunderstanding lies. A lot of it comes from a lack of listening. And more often than not, we begin to become a people who try and say what God is like. And oftentimes, we say that he's like us. <laughs> What's your favorite, A.W., what is A.W. Tozer? He says, he says what comes, A.W. Tozer says this, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Put another way, what you think about God will shape the destiny of your life. Who God is has profound implications for who we are. And by nature, we have a tendency sometimes to like ourselves and also see those characters. And we're made in the image of God. And so we, we tend to think of that thing being the most important thing or piece about who God is. But what we want to do in this series is we want to listen. We want to become learners. I, grant, I guarantee that as we go, there's going to be some things that we share during this series that are going to make us uncomfortable but we want to press in because we want to learn about who God is as he has told us. We want to try and do our best to be good listeners to him. And so that's going to take us to uh, the passage that we're going to be in for the next seven weeks. I'm going to read it. We're going to do two verses for the next seven weeks, and we're going to be picking apart words bit by bit. If you think we've gone slow before, two verses, seven weeks. This is going to be awesome. Uh, but I really encourage you guys to memorize this verse. This is the most quoted verse by the Bible in the Bible, okay? And so uh, what that means is that sometimes it's not quoted in full, but bits and pieces are pulled from these two verses, and I almost guarantee that we have all skimmed over this. There'll be bits and pieces that sound super familiar, but this is the root of where this comes from. You hear it all throughout the Psalms. You even hear it throughout the New Testament. Bits and pieces are going to be pulled out and referenced back to this moment in Exodus 34. This is the moment, the first moment, where God expounds upon who he is. He defines himself to us. And so we want to press into this. Uh, we're going to do a lot of unpacking this morning. Uh, and so buckle up. Here we go. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Again, this is God proclaiming to Moses about who he is. The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here we begin to see God not just referring, being referred to as somebody with a title, but now there's an unpacking, not just of what is his name, but who and what is he like. Rather than communicate in systematic theological or in a the, in systematic theological terms, like omniscient and immutability, which are all true things, God communicates to us in words that we can understand and we can relate to, and that's incredibly important for us. And so, but before we get into Exodus 34, we've got to have a backstory of where we've come from. And so how has God been referred to up until this point? But before I go further, I gotta pray. Lord, we are thankful for who you are and what you're doing. And right now we just, I think we all just wanna come before you 
I know I do, God. I want to learn from you. Not just today. I want to learn from you throughout this series. I want to learn you, and I want to, I want to get to know you as you have revealed yourself. And so, Father, I just put up uh, maybe some of my misconceptions that I have of you, my misunderstandings, and I just lay them at your feet. And Lord, I ask you to continue to train me and teach me who you are. And this morning, I, I ask that there would be a, a fresh thankfulness. A fresh thankfulness to know that you are not a God who is far off. That you are not a God who is ever-changing. But that you are Yahweh. And you desire a relationship with us. If we get nothing else this morning, God, I ask that you, through Holy Spirit, but instill a fresh desire, a fresh awe, a fresh wonder in actually growing in relationship with creator of heaven and earth. What a joy and honor it is to be with one another in this place. What a privilege it is to learn more about you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, if you can't tell, I'm. this is... I'm excited for this. I think this is important for us. Um, I don't know if there's any way we can turn some of these down. I'm getting a little bit of a bounce back glare, uh, and I don't want to get sunburned. Um, okay, so how, we want to learn how has God been known up to this point in the story. Again, the invitation in this series, let's begin to get to know who God is on his terms, not on ours. So we go back all the way to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... Who? God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. The name that's used for him there, it's actually not a name, it's a title, it's Elohim. Okay, we're going to look at the word Elohim next week, uh, but it's very important for us to understand. We have a tendency to think of God as a name, and what we're going to realize, by and large, God is not a name, God is a title. So at the very beginning... In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. After that, in the garden, before sin enters the world, we don't see actually Adam and Eve referring to God with a name. But we see this intimate relationship, one where they're walking and talking, they're engaging in the garden. There is relationship. You see, God create Adam and Eve, and he creates Adam, and he says, man, it's not good for man to be alone. So what does he do? He creates a helper suitable for him. And you see a God who's connected to his creation. We see a God who is interested in his creation, who knows his creation, who engages with his creation. The story goes on in Genesis 3. The fall occurs, and sin ruins everything. Almost everything, actually. It's not without hope. But we see this breaking down. We see God pursuing Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's this horrifically sad event where God is searching for Adam and Eve. And, and what this implies is that there was a regular pattern where God and Adam and Eve engaged with each other on a regular basis. Adam and Eve knew God was coming. So what are we going to do? We're going to hide. Because we know that we can't be in relationship anymore. 
So they're cast out of the garden. And from that moment on, there's a breaking in their relationship. Yes, there's hope, and God promises redemption in Genesis 3.15. But there's a break. Adam and Eve are pushed out inside the garden, which also resembles outside the relationship with God. And there is a restarting, if you will, trying to figure out who and what God is like. You might notice, if you read through the Old Testament, that names are kind of a big deal. Uh, it was way more than a label you used. It was your name. It, it was, excuse me, it was your identity. Oftentimes, it was even tied to your destiny. But it's important for us to see up until this point in the story, even though God has been incredibly personal, at this point, he doesn't have a name yet. He has a title. It's Elohim. Names are relevatory of the nature of a person. But let's keep going. Let's move around. We're going to go towards Genesis 12 now. Genesis 12, the creator comes to a guy named Abram. He calls him to stop worshiping the gods of that day. He calls him out of Ur and into the land of Canaan. And Abram goes and he becomes Abraham. And the relationship God has with Abraham is stunning. When God in, comes to him in Genesis 17, 1, he says, I am God Almighty. In the original language, this is I am El Shaddai. If there's any hardcore Amy Grant followers, you remember her song, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Uh, so this is important. This is another title. It's not a name. So El is, is the common name for gods. So uh, he calls Abram to, to leave a land of worshiping other Els, other gods. Again, we're going to look into this a lot next week. It actually gets kind of wild. Um, but then the Shaddai part means more, better, victorious. Put together, God is basically saying, and again, this is God revealing himself to Abraham. He's saying that he is above all other gods. He is God Almighty. That he is victorious over all other gods. What he's not saying is that there aren't any other gods. He's victorious over other gods. He's El Shaddai. Put together, he's saying, I am supreme. One of the wild parts of the story is after God reveals more of himself to Abram, Abram is given a new destiny. Because we don't know him as Abram, we know him as Abraham. Abram's original name is Exalted Father. Abraham, anybody? Father of many nations. Even Abram's name becomes, it almost like grows. Uh, and there is a prophetic nature to God giving Abram his name, Abraham. Later, God calls himself in different ports, El Elyon, God Most High, or El Olam, God Everlasting, but still not a name. These are titles. God's revealing himself bit by bit to humanity. And again, why this way? I don't know. I don't know why. It's still a little bit distant. God's come near. He's communicating. He's revealing himself to his people, but he's still giving them titles to know him by. Not a name. 
God only showed part of himself to Abraham. He doesn't give revelation all at once, but in bits and pieces, giving people time to absorb and grapple who God is. Now we skip ahead a bit in the journey into the story of God's people as we come to Moses. In Exodus 3, we have this famous story uh, that many know about, the story of the burning bush. Uh, There's this bush burning, and uh, Moses is in his father-in-law's sheep area, and he sees this burning bush, and he's like, that's weird. Uh, And and so he, he, out of curiosity, it's kind of important, there's a curiosity that exists within Moses, and he goes to the burning bush. And then in Exodus 3.6, and he said, this is God speaking to Moses, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Notice the word here is still Elohim. It's the title for God. This is less about God's name and more about his resume. This is how you've known me in the past, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's me. That's me. Moses and God then get into a conversation where not only does God speak to Moses, but Moses speaks back to God, which is crazy. He's like afraid he's going to die, and then he has the guts to speak up and come back and talk to God. And it takes kind of a dramatic turn in verses 13 and 14. Moses asks God a really profound question. I just, I love that too. We see characters in scripture asking God questions. God doesn't hate your questions. He doesn't despise your questions. He's a good father who loves your questions. Listen to what he says. He said, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What's interesting about this? Anybody catch that? If I come to the people, so then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What's interesting here is that Moses says to who? God. And then he asks the question, what is his name? So God is not his name. It's, it, it's, it's, from, I'm, this may, you're like, duh, or who cares? Like, I, guys, this is actually like profound to me. Because the way we relate to one another, the re- way we relate to somebody dictates the type of relationship that you have. John Mark writes about this moment, and he says, Moses' question is fascinating. In Hebrew, what's his name is Ma Shemo. And if you were in ancient Hebrew, if you were an ancient Hebrew reader, your ears would perk up right here. It's different from the typical way you ask someone their name. If you lived in a Hebrew refugee camp in 1500 BC, you would walk up to a stranger and ask Mi Shimka, which is more literally, who is your name? But that's not what Moses asks. He asks Ma Shemo. Ma Shemo is more like What is the meaning of your name? What is the significance of your name? Or what makes you, you? Moses asks for God's name. 
And like we just saw, God has a name. And to be clear, it's not God. That's a title. I'm not saying we can't ever use the word God anymore. I'm just, we're just highlighting what, again, we're trying to learn here. But Moses is asking for more than a label. He's asking for essence. He's asking for character. Moses asking God this question is him pressing into God. That the God, yes, the God of his father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's, he's making himself known. And, and so rather than just taking how he's been known, he's actually wanting to press in and know more. There's a curiosity, a desire that, whoa, if you are the God of my fathers, I want to know you more. So God replies to Moses with a famous, I am who I am. I don't know if you guys have ever thought that, but I just feel like that's a riddle. <laughs> like, like there's part of the, I am who I am, great. Like, <laughs> this isn't very helpful to me. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Another way to phrase this would be that whatever I am, I will be. He is speaking to his own faithfulness, his presence, his eternality, and his almightiness. Yahweh is the word that we're looking at today. That in the Lord in Exodus 34, the Lord, that word is Yahweh. Anytime you see uh, the L-O-R-D all in caps, that's the holy name of God. That's Yahweh. That's the name we're looking at. And what I love is that there's some beautiful things about Yahweh, but there's also a lot of things that need to be unpacked about Yahweh because it can be huge. It's massive. It's a little bit scary. But thankfully, Exodus 34 doesn't just say, hey, here's my name and nothing else, but it's my name, and now this is what that means. But we're starting huge, massive, the all-encompassing picture. I am who I will be. Whatever is true about him is always true about him. He will keep his promises. He will be faithful. Just as he referred to, I'm the, the, the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are promises that have been made to those men, to those fathers. And guess what God is saying? I will be faithful. I am who I will be. I will be faithful to fulfill those things. The writer of Hebrews picks this up, and we're jumping a little bit of ahead, and we're going to come back here in a minute. But in Hebrews 13, 8, there's something very similar said about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he's doing with Moses in the burning bush is he's saying, you can trust me. I'm giving you a name to which you can know me, to which you can call me by. Yahweh. I am who I am. Again, I don't think for us in our, trans, our English transliteration, I don't, think we are, I don't think we have the gravity of understanding that word in full. Again, this is a part of that what I talked about before. There's potentially always going to be a little bit of a misunderstanding. Like, I can't know in full. I don't know if we know this about God, but like, you can't know it all. Like we, that's one of the things that makes him God and me not. But we want to press in, even though God is not knowable in the finite sense. God has made himself knowable. And to those things that he's made knowable, we want to press into. Does that make sense? Okay, so when God says, I am who I am, he uses, if those of you who uh, want to know these things, uh, in Hebrew, it's ayah, like a karate chop, ayah, 
Aser, ayah, I am who I am. Uh, so he's referring to himself in the first person. Hebrews, of course, did not refer to him in the first person like that. They would refer to him in the third person. And so the way they say that would be Yahweh. So that's where we get it. Ayah is I am. Yahweh is he is. So one of the things we can see in this, though, is that God, just like we talked about that beautiful picture in the garden with Adam and Eve walking together with him, God has always desired relationship with his people. And it doesn't start with Jesus. It starts with Yahweh revealing himself, even coming down to earth and making himself known. God has always intended an intimate relationship between his people and himself. And he's doing it with his own self-disclosure. And this is where we really want to press in. We want to know God on his terms. It's always hard when you're trying to become friends with somebody and you always feel like you're on the other person's terms or like they are dictating everything. But there's a, there's a piece to this with the fact that he is God. Like, I want to learn from him what he is like. And we see this with Moses. He wants to keep moving. He wants to keep knowing. And so the story with Moses doesn't end. We get... Another dramatic scene in Exodus 33. You can turn there if you like, verses 12 through 30, excuse me, 12 through 23, where we get to eavesdrop on a conversation between God and Moses. Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Look at that. There's this plea. Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And also consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to them, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Moses said, please, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft on the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses says, Show me your glory. Today, glory equals fame. Uh, Ancient Hebrew glory means presence, beauty. It's what God is like, his character. It's his invisible attributes becoming visible. It's the invisible coming into reality. And God says, I'll show you my goodness. 
Goodness and glory could be synonymous here, by the way. They're not separate. I'll show you my goodness. I'll show you what I'm like. And he reveals the name Yahweh. But God says that it's more than a simple label. When he says, I will proclaim my name, he means I will show you what I'm like. So God gives Moses some instructions, and he comes back the next day, Exodus 34, 4 through 8. And he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And here we get to our key text, again, which I'd love for us all to memorize together. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord Elohim, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And how does Moses respond? Verse 8, quickly bows his head to the earth and worships. Here God is describing himself to Israel. It's not Moses defining who God is. It's God describing who he is. We're going to unpack the rest of these verses and phrases in the weeks to come. And today, if you haven't deduced, we're talking about that first word here, that word Yahweh. And well, in that, we're seeing that God, the creator God, all-powerful, the one who always is, Yahweh wants to be known. He interrupts humanity to reveal himself. And he wants this world to know what he's like, his nature, his character, his goodness, his name. One of the really sad parts about that, this is that Israel missed this in many regards. They missed this so much. Part of it is because... Uh, those, the, we've got the Ten Commandments, right? I believe it's the third commandment. Thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain, right? The Lord, your God's name in vain. Uh, most of us, uh, we refer to this as like with our mouths, right? And we'll talk more about this in the future as we, our, last, our last message is going to be talking about carrying the name. And this, this has thrown me for a loop even this week because I... I relegate that commandment solely to speaking. The problem is, that was never God's intention with the Ten Commandments and what he's establishing as he's saying not to take the Lord's name in vain. That word to take, actually the proper translation for it is to carry. Thou shalt not carry the Lord's name in vain. The thing is, carrying the Lord's name is, can be a little bit ambiguous and a little bit kind of funky, and so it's hard to really nail down what I should or shouldn't do if we're talking about carrying the Lord's name in vain. However, we know that the Pharisees and the religious leaders at the time, they actually, so their heart was right. They wanted to protect that law. This is the revealed law to them by God, and so they took it to such a degree that not, they didn't want to accidentally say the, name, the Lord's name in vain that they stopped using the word Yahweh altogether. Even today, if you're reading in Jewish literature, even the word entitled God, they often will spell G slash or space D. They won't even write G-O-D. Because there is still this desire, and part of it's good. There's this honor in wanting to preserve this and not wanting to defile the commandments. 
But in doing so, they miss out on some of the very essence of God revealing his name in the first place. God's desire in revealing his name in the first place wasn't to make people go, whoa, I'm so scared and run away from their life and never engage with God again. It was to go, whoa, I'm so scared. And he says, I got you. I am Yahweh. I've made you. And I want you to know what I'm like. I want to be in relationship with you. This is one of the reasons, along with our sin, (laughs) that Jesus had to come. Because we were heading down a path where people... God was just becoming a distant figure who was grumpy and angry and sometimes liked to kill people. It's what people often thought about who God was. Even the Hebrew writers ceased to use the word Yahweh in some cases and started using the word Hashem, which is the name, or Adonai. And these aren't bad terms. They're not bad terms at all, but therefore we're not careful. Bit by bit, they can start leading us down a path that is further away from intimacy and relationship with God, who is creator. And so how does God ultimately combat this? Through the incarnation of Jesus. Yahweh becomes flesh. I don't know about you guys, but when I, growing up, when I was taught about Yahweh, I, I, I always associated Yahweh with the Father. Um, what's kind of interesting is there's way more biblical evidence for Jesus being Yahweh, and which we'll see, but shocker, Jesus is Yahweh, if we, if we don't know, and we'll show you right here as we begin to kind of land this plane. Jesus is the evidence that God's desire is to dwell with us and to relate to us in the most intimate way possible. In John 1, 1, first we see that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, In this way, uh, the author John is writing of Jesus, and he is saying that Jesus has eternally existed, that he is creator, uh, and that he has been with God from the beginning. But the things in which Jesus is doing is what Yahweh does. Later, we see in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. All throughout John, Jesus uses this phrase called ego eimi, which our English translation is I am. This is why people, as Jesus was speaking to crowds, And he says, I am the bread of life. People pick up stones to kill him because he's claiming to be Yahweh. He's not even being subversive about it. He's being bold about it. John 17, 6 and verse 26. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. In verse 26, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. 
the early Christians were quick to pick up the gravity of Jesus and his claims to be the embodiment of God, to be Yahweh. In fact, in order to be a Christian or to become a Christian in the first century, there was a statement and a slogan, a creed that you had to say out loud or else you couldn't be baptized. And that statement was simple. Jesus is Lord. And again, for us, I think there's been some weight that's been lost to that. See, when he says Jesus is Lord, they're saying Jesus is curios. He's not curious, he's curios, which is Greek for Lord or King. This in their culture was treasonous to say because there was already a curios. Who was curios? Caesar. Caesar's curios. So even just saying this, they could be killed. On top of that, the Jewish culture in which they're in, this Greek translation, curios, is the Hebrew transliteration from Yahweh. So now they're potentially going to be killed by Romans and they're potentially going to be killed by Jews. But for them, it was paramount for them to understand Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. He is. But in that, we learn that even the most large, biggest form of God, I I know some of this sounds like even as I'm saying these things, this is, again, there's the comprehensive and the incomprehensive side of who God is. But the biggest, most magnificent, powerful terminology that we have for God, Yahweh, is Jesus. And Jesus came here to show us what God is like. Show us who God is. To show us that God desires a relationship so desperately with you that Yahweh will go to the cross. In Jesus. And die for us. That's crazy to me. It's another quote by John Mark Comer that I think is helpful for us. At least this helped describe how I viewed God for many years. For years I thought of Yahweh in the Old Testament as parallel with the Father in the New. Like Jesus is a newcomer in the story. That's wrong and dangerous. It leads to a twisted caricature as if the Father is the grumpy old warmonger in the Old Testament and Jesus is the son who went off to Berkeley and came home with all sorts of radical ideas about grace and love and tolerance and basically said, come on, Dad, let's not kill everybody. How about I die for them instead? There's a little cheekiness there, but there's some reality to that. But Yahweh, the core characteristic of Yahweh, I am who I will And Jesus has shown us that from the moment that sin broke into this world, that God's heart was always to be with his people. And that he was not willing to stop. Jesus shows us that Yahweh was not once this angry guy and now really ticked off. But he shows us that Yahweh is slow to anger compassionate, abounding, and steadfast love. 
Jesus reveals what Yahweh is like. And you guys, I feel like, and maybe this is me, maybe it's not you. Uh, I think I've grown up in a generation that seriously takes that for, for, for granted. My, my dad came to know Jesus during the Jesus movement. Um, some of you came to know Jesus during the Jesus movement. And that was an incredibly important time for the church. Because you know one thing that the Jesus movement got right was that it wasn't about a religion, it was about a relationship. And that's beautiful, right? That's beautiful. And I got, by God's grace, I got to grow up in a culture where that was actually celebrated. But the challenging piece to that is that almost became like normal. And I slowly started to take advantage of the, the reality that, that Jesus, the Yahweh, died so that we might be in right relation. Not just me personally, but his people might be in relationship with him. And I still would throw out that phrase, yeah, I'm not a part of a religion, I'm a part of a relationship. But if you start like boiling that down, cooking some of that stuff off, you start asking, what the heck does that mean? What does that look like in your life? And I think a lot of people in my generation are like, yeah, actually it's probably still more like a religion than it is a relationship because I don't, I don't know God on his terms. I pursue God on my dime, on my terms, how I like it or don't like it. And the sad part is the generation after us are starting to wonder, you say you have a relationship with Jesus, but it seems like you have more of a relationship with your PlayStation or with your work or with your fantasy football team or fill in the blank. And then the generation after that, which is now present, is starting to say, like, relationship? What relationship? I hope this morning, and the worship team, you guys can come on up. I hope this morning that there's something in your heart and your soul that is just stirring, hopefully a little bit. There's a curiosity from, from Moses to go check out the burning bush. There's a curiosity after he's seen the burning bush to press in on Mount Sinai. I hope that in some way, shape, or form, God is pricking your heart this morning to remind you that Yahweh came in the flesh, yes, to die for your sins, but also to start reclaiming and redeeming which once was from the beginning, which was a right relationship with Yahweh in the garden where we talk together where we know one another, where sometimes we didn't even have to call him by name because he was right there. He's given you a name. He's given you a high priest, Jesus, in whom you can now access Yahweh. But the Lord stir us into deeper relationship with him, and I hope this is just the beginning for us. And I hope now we respond to seeing how great he is right now. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you're doing. Lord, I just I ask that you would continue to stir us. I thank you for how, Lord willing, you've pricked us already. I know that there's tons of information this morning. But Holy Spirit, I now ask that you would begin to stir, to convict. And also that you would turn our hearts to joy. 
Moses engaged with you. He heard you speak, tell of who you were, and he couldn't help but worship. And God, right now, as we have walked through this time together, I ask that the same would be true of us. We've heard bits and pieces about who you are. It's just the beginning. But man, I know for me, that's more than enough to begin to declare your glory, your beauty with my brothers and sisters.